And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Christian Kontz. Christian had a near-death experience following an accident, and today we're going to talk about that and his other paranormal experiences. Christian, thank you so much for being my guest, and welcome. Hi, Jeff. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, It's really a pleasure and a very nice experience to be on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And one great thing is... My audience likes me to get guests from other parts of the world, and today we have Christian coming in from Hungary. Uh, Yes, indeed. I'm in Hungary, Mm -hmm. and um, the experience I'm going to talk about, it's actually happened in London. uh, That's where where I was living at the time, and um, I kind of lived in different countries um, during my childhood and uh, adult life as well. So I spent a few years in uh, India as a child, and then as an as an adult, um, I lived in the UK, in uh, Ireland, and in Singapore, and now I'm back in uh, back in Hungary. Mm. So this is where I'm talking from. So the experience happened in uh, London. This was probably around 2013, 2014. I didn't really make a make a note of the exact date, uh, which is in contrast with the other experience I'm also going to talk about. Um, you must also understand that I had a Kundalini awakening experience prior to this, which, if you don't know, is a sort of surging energy that uh, starts from the base of the spine and uh, rises up to the very top of the skull, basically. And it breaks through um, the energetic barrier that's at the very top of the skull, um, just uh, next to the crown chakra, basically. And this creates an opening, um, which makes it easier for the person who has experienced this to leave their body. So this um, this is what usually Buddhists and Hindus think, that um, when a person dies and the soul exits the body. It, it, it actually leaves um, towards the top of the head. It's the top back part. And so it was quite interesting that um, this NDE happened in, uh, in uh, London. And uh, I basically slipped in the bathtub and uh, flew back at uh, quite a pace hit my head at exactly the spot where your where your soul is supposed to leave your body upon death. And so I just flew out of my body. And uh, I was outside of it for several minutes. And um, <clears throat> I found myself uh, floating above my body. And uh, it was a bit like uh, being in water. So when you're... Um, when you're swimming and you're sort of um, on your belly, you know, swimming. That's that's basically the position I found myself in. And um, it was quite interesting because my uh, flatmate at the time, this uh, Israeli, he was um, calling my name, um, trying to find out what had happened to me. And uh, I could hear him, but his voice came through as it as it was through water, basically. Mm. So I could hear his voice, but uh, it was kind of distant. And it was like being in the pool underwater and, and hearing somebody talking to you. So that's, that's basically how it felt. And the interesting thing is that uh, I felt larger than usual. So um, I expanded a bit. And... Um, as I was looking around, um, I could see the bathroom and I could see the light above me. But I found it quite difficult to uh, move or to turn around. So I started sort of flailing my arms as if I were trying to swim. Mm. And I slowly turned around, uh, looking towards the door. And I could hear my um, flatmate uh, calling my name. Was I couldn't uh, open the uh, 
the door, obviously. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't in, in a physical state. And uh, I could actually sense a light above my head, which is sort of silvery white light that um, I sort of felt it calling towards me. But um, I kind of knew what it was. Didn't really feel like uh, I should go towards the light or anything like that. I was just floating, floating um, above my own body. And I, could, and I could actually look down. And as I looked down, my, my body was uh, lying there uh, face up. So it was actually looking up at me and my eyes were closed. And I was looking down on my, on my own body. And um, <clears throat> so basically I grew a bit um, worried because I knew my flatmate was uh, calling my name and I could hear it distantly. So then I thought, okay, well, this, this is not going to be good for anyone. If I, if I stay here, I should go back. Mm. And um, then as I, as I had this thought, uh, I started shrinking and sort of swirling around in like a um, spiraling motion. And as I, I started going down, basically, and I got smaller, and it was a bit like um, letting water down the drain. So it was like a mini tornado. And so I started spinning around. I saw the room spinning. And uh, I could still see outside. So I could see the ceiling of the, of the bathroom while it was spinning. And then I started shrinking and I got back into my, into my body. So I finally found myself uh, back in my body. And, um, but I couldn't move for a while. So I was quite hurt. And um, then very slowly I started moving my, uh, my arms and my legs and then I started feeling the pain. So then I then I knew I was I was better. And then it took me a few minutes until I managed to get on my feet and uh, open the bathroom and tell my flatmate that everything was okay. Although I had a big bump uh, at the back of my head for probably several days. But uh, yeah, so that's what happened. That was my near NDE, you could say. Almost. <laughs> well, that was a really fascinating story. I appreciate you sharing it. One of the things that I found very interesting was when you were hearing your flatmate, it sounded like he was underwater. And I've never like heard I was before. underwater, yeah. While you were out, did you have any feeling of peace or love or relaxation? Yes, it was a very peaceful and relaxed experience. Uh, it wasn't the first time I experienced being outside my body, so it wasn't uh, completely new to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very similar experience to uh, when I had some mystical experiences or uh, I did um, astral travel a couple of times. And uh, it was very noteworthy that the feeling uh, was actually exactly the same. So, um, yeah, I was there not in my body, but my uh, personhood, myself, that was actually present. And so when this kind of thing happens to you, you just realize that you are not your body. Mm-hmm. Um, your, yourself, your personhood has nothing to do with your body. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, something similar to an astral body, perhaps. This is what people usually call it. Or you could call it a soul or a spirit, but this is um, separate from your physical body. So that that becomes quite obvious once you have an experience like this. At any point in time, were you thinking, okay, I'm out of my body now. I guess that fall must have knocked me out or, you know, kind of the realization that you're out and it was a consequence of the fall? Um, yes, I was, I was aware. I was fully aware of everything. But... Um, I, I wasn't worried. Um, I actually enjoyed the experience. So um, being outside your body is, is very pleasant, actually. It's a bit like being in space and uh, floating around and uh, having a good time, to be honest. So I think 
anybody who experiences this, they usually don't like coming back. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you come back into your body, it's quite um, constraining. It's restrictive. It feels like a prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, you feel like you are shut into uh, a small space. So it's, it's quite claustrophobic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, but... Uh, the highlight is, is is always being outside your body, not the coming back. Right. I was going to ask if when you came back, did you feel like you were just stuffed back in your body? Yes, exactly. Although it was more of a, um, well, it's kind of hard to explain, but I, um, I fell back into my body would be the best, best expression, I would say. And after doing so many of these interviews, you are the first person to describe re-entering the body, kind of like going through a reverse tunnel. Yes, and it's also similar to what you see in cartoons. If you've ever seen like um, Aladdin, where there's the genie in the lamp. And uh, usually when, when the genie goes back into the lamp, it's a sort of uh, spiraling motion. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so it's probably quite similar to that. It's like going back into a small container mm-hmm. that's actually much smaller than yourself. You know, it's funny as I had this conversation with someone else before, and I had wondered that if the origin of the story comes from somebody who had a near-death experience like you did and kind of came up with that idea of the genie in the bottle and forcing the spirit back in. Yes, yes, Probably. A lot of people will say that they go through a tunnel when they're on the way out of their body or once they're out of their body, then they go through a tunnel. Have you ever experienced the tunnel? And do you think leaving your body is also going through a tunnel or the going through a, a tunnel that people experience is going to another dimension once you're already out? Well, it's difficult to say whether this is um, another dimension I think in this case, uh, when I had this particular NDE, I was just uh, slightly shifted into maybe a parallel dimension, I would say. So I was still um, in the same place. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't interact with it. Right. And um, I, I did not have the experience of going through the, the tunnel as such. It's more that I was the tunnel itself. So I um, I became a sort of gateway, mm-hmm. if, you can, if you can picture that. So if you think about um, a tunnel or a wormhole, it's usually, um, it usually goes between two points in space-time or perhaps to different dimensions mm-hmm. or parallel universes. So in this case, my entire being was the tunnel itself. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it felt like. Do you feel like this experience changed you in any way spiritually, like you were transformed by it, or it was just kind of a simple thing that happened to you and maybe you had transformed by your previous Kundalini experience? Um, this one was quite um, simple. So it didn't really change me in any particular way. It was the Kundalini experience before that uh, that uh, brought the big changes in my life. Okay. If you don't mind, can you tell us about that one? Yes. Yeah, so, um, um, well, I have to give a bit of a background to that. Mm-hmm. So I started meditating when I was uh, 13. And uh, I was always quite interested in spiritual topics and books and uh started reading up on that. I did a bit of yoga, although not very seriously, just the basics of meditation and uh, poses and breath work and that kind of thing. Uh, But I continued my own practice um, into my 30s with uh, pretty big gaps. Because during the time I lived in Ireland as an an adult, I sort of started losing faith because... uh, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, and um, that was the time when a lot of the big um, scandals around the church started coming out with uh, abuse and slavery and uh, that kind of uh, thing. 
And so I wasn't really uh, sure I wanted to uh, continue being a Catholic. And so I gradually lost faith and became an atheist. But um, I was still interested in spirituality. So um, at around age 30, I started uh, working on it a bit more seriously uh, with daily meditations. And uh, I was living in uh, London at the time. And I took daily walks um, around the River Thames and uh, St. Paul's Cathedral and that sort of uh, central part of London, which, uh, for those that don't know, is actually a pretty um, important um, center point on the Earth's energetic grid. Mm. So um, there's a lot of um, sacred geometry and... uh, different energetic um, vehicles or constructs in the form of cathedrals and uh, stone circles and uh, templar churches and and, and that sort of thing that are centered on that area. And this is actually where I I was uh, living myself and where I was working. So I spent a lot of time there. And so I I took up meditation again more seriously and... uh, uh, I did energy work on myself and breath work and uh, that sort of thing. And I started going to the British Museum in London and uh, visiting it um, at least once a week, uh, sometimes with my friend who is also interested. And I was drawn to the uh, Sumerian and Assyrian uh, exhibits within the museum. Uh, which are mostly from the city of Iraq in Sumer, which was later to be Assyria. And uh, this was actually the holy city of the goddess uh, Inanna Ishtar, uh, who was a major goddess in the in the Middle East thousands of years ago. And, um, you know, some, some remnants of her worship uh, still survive today in different forms. Just something I can discuss maybe some other time. Mm-hmm. And um, so I felt drawn to um, these artifacts from ancient Sumer and Assyria uh, straight away. There are some pretty famous ones like the Bernie Relief over there and um, different statues and uh, even personal artifacts that are uh, associated with the um, worship of these uh, ancient Sumerian gods. And so I felt uh, kind of close to them and uh, energetically connected. So I started doing research and uh, trying to find out what it was all about. And then I found that my uh, Kundalini awakening was actually progressing uh, quite nicely, which uh, started uh, at the base of my spine. So there was, uh, first I could feel heat and a bit of pressure there's always a sensation of light, which you can sense that obviously you cannot see with your physical eyes because it's not physical light. It's um, astral light, you could say. And then as my Kundalini started rising, um, it took a couple of years until it got to my uh, heart chakra, And uh, then it got stuck and uh, started experiencing um, chest pain and heart palpitations and uh, various nervous symptoms. Um, So I I forgot some pretty major things and uh, I found myself uh, being barely able to function. Obviously, I I still had to go to work and I had a social life and whatnot. And so I found myself stuck, um, not knowing what to do. I didn't have a teacher in uh, yoga who could who, who could assist me, and I, I, I didn't know anyone. So I was just doing my own thing. And then after a visit to the uh, British Museum, I was actually near St. Paul's Cathedral in the city of London, which is also where my office was. And um, I felt that I had to ask for help. And I didn't um, direct it particularly to anyone, but I had this image in my mind, uh, which was a stone relief um, 
that I've just visited in the in the British Museum from the city of Iraq, which actually shows the god Enki um, sprinkling holy water with um, a pine cone, holding a pine cone in his hand and sprinkling holy water on this king, uh, showing basically his um, that he's being anointed to be the king. And this uh, custom of sprinkling someone with holy water, this actually comes from Sumer. So that's where um, it actually originates. And so I sort of prayed, um, even though I was an atheist uh, pretty much up to that point, but I thought I, I, I can't lose anything. I, I need help. So I asked um, this God, I didn't say a name, just, just thinking about that image, and said, if you can give me help, I would, I would really appreciate it. If you can send someone to assist me, uh, that would be even better. And then I felt this download of uh, energy. Like I said, this was very near St. Paul's Cathedral. I was near the uh, cathedral gardens where I used to go to meditate. And um, I felt a beam of energy coming down, like uh, maybe white light that entered my brain and my, and my whole body, and I felt it suffusing me. So I thought, okay, well, this, this seems to do something. It seems to work. So I was quite hopeful that something uh, positive would happen. And the next day I was in my apartment, which was uh, near the River Thames and not far from Tower Bridge in uh, London. And as I was washing up, I felt this um, presence enter the room from slightly above me and towards the back. It actually felt like a second sun, like the sun was uh, opening up and uh, radiating its, its, its rays upon me. And I felt this, these uh, rays, which were quite hot and had a very strong radiance, sort of caressing me from the, from, from the back, like you would when you're outside uh, in the sun. And I thought this is very strange because there is no window um, on that wall. So I said, where, where is this uh, light coming from? So I turned around and I saw this uh, white light um, that looked just like a sun. And then I realized that, uh, you know, I got a visitation of some sort. Somebody visited me. And it had a very strong uh, benevolent and uh, loving presence. So it was like, um, I knew it was a deity of sorts. I didn't know exactly at that time who it was, but uh, I could also feel that it was a female presence, um, which is something you can, you can tell uh, even with a physical person. Like if you, are, if you are in a room and somebody walks in without them seeing you, you will often know whether that person is male or female just just from the vibe that you're getting. So I think everybody has has experienced this. So I couldn't see anything apart from the light, but I knew somebody was there and I could feel their presence and their intentions. Um, do you have any questions at this point? I do, but I don't know if I want to interrupt you yet. Okay. I want to keep the story going. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so this person came into the room and uh, <clears throat> of course it, it, it wasn't a human being. Um, this is a being of light, which is, which is the best way uh, to explain it. And it was a white light, um, very bright, quite hot. And I could sort of feel some of this light uh, coming out of the center and touching me, sort of uh, enveloping me in a way. So I realized that uh, this light being actually has um, 
maybe tentacles made of light would be would be a good way to explain it. So definitely, um, it 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 wasn't a human body the way we we think about it, but um, some sort of uh, light being. Um, and um, so she touched me. And actually, what what happened at that point is that she got behind my back, or maybe I turned around. I don't really remember. But she communicated with me telepathically. So um, she communicated intentions and feelings and emotions. And uh, so I knew why she was there and uh, what she wanted, but I couldn't hear any words. It was just an exchange of um, energy, basically. And so what she did is she touched me from behind and uh, she touched my back. And I could actually feel something like a hand uh, touching me. And uh, it felt very real. So it didn't feel like um, something that is just astral or spiritual. It felt like a real human touch. And uh, so as she touched me, uh, I felt this uh, surge of energy. And of course, it was um, my heart chakra that was uh, blocked. And later on, I I discovered why this was. It was basically because of my uh, atheist convictions and beliefs, which uh, blocked my heart, to be honest. Um, But she gave me this uh, energy and I felt a huge surge, which is very similar to um, what a Kundalini surge um, generally feels like anyway, but it was much more powerful. So she gave me uh, significantly more energy than I had on my own and uh, started searching all over my body. And I felt that I was filled with light. So my entire body was filled with this with this light energy. And uh, as you know, there are um, energetic pathways within the body, um, which are a bit like veins, but instead of blood, they carry this sort of liquid energy, liquid light, you could say. And uh, these are called nadis by the, by the Hindus. Um, and so I could feel these energetic pathways being filled with this liquid light. And it surged all over my body. And then I could feel uh, the blockages clearing up. So it was like when you when you have a drain that's blocked and you you just use like a pressure hose or highly pressurized water to un- unblock it. And that started happening all over my body. Uh, body so the blockages were removed and um, the energy managed to um, to go through my heart and then up along the spine all the way up into my head and so I felt quite relieved and uh, then I thought okay I, I, I have to lie down because uh, this was such an overwhelming experience I did. I actually did, uh, didn't know what else to do, so I just went into my room without saying anything, and I I had to lie down because um, usually when you experience Kundalini, um, it's it's most of the time best to lie down because it can cause some quite interesting effects in terms of uh, what are called kriyas, uh, which are involuntary movements that are caused by the surge of energy because this affects uh, the nerves in your body so you might you might move around uh, trash around a bit things like that but so there was this huge surge of energy that that I just had to deal with and uh, so I went into my room and I lied down and basically tried to process the experience um, and my kundalini started activating uh, from the base and uh, it, it went up quite quickly all the way to the top of my head. 
which is uh, it, it it never actually went uh, that far before. So this took maybe I would say quite a few minutes, maybe even twenty minutes. And then again, I found myself uh, stuck in a way because it went all the way uh, to the top of my head here in the back. But then it started uh, bumping against my skull in a sort of rhythmic fashion. Uh, usually the Kundalini energy is uh, imagined to be a snake and the head of the snake always tries to break through and sort of uh, come out at the back and peek out in a way, which you can see. You can see this is uh, usually depicted like that in uh, Egyptian art with the pharaohs, for instance, with the, with the snake on their forehead. Or you see, um, when you see pictures or paintings of the Buddha, it's usually shown with, uh, with a snake um, behind him, usually a seven-headed snake. Uh, so these are all symbolic of the, of the same thing, basically. And so I find myself stuck again, and, and, and the Kundalini couldn't move to the very, very top. So this is the final knot that the Kundalini has to break through. And then uh, I actually re- realized that, uh, that this person, this goddess, was still there. And she floated into the room. Um, uh, it's very hard to explain, but um, she was definitely floating above the ground by maybe three, four feet or about a meter. And... Um, I cannot say whether whether the light that was coming from her, whether that was physically visible or whether I just saw it with my astral senses or my third eye. But I couldn't differentiate at, at that point, but I saw her as this uh, sort of uh, current light. So she, was, uh, she wasn't uh, disparate, but she had a body of sorts that was made entirely of light. And I'm guessing it, it was probably held together by some sort of uh, electromagnetic field, because there's definitely that kind of effect in the room. And so she floated towards me, and uh, I was actually lying down, and she floated above me. And then I realized that she wanted to help me to uh, complete the process. So she started enveloping me in this light. And she even reached into me with her light tendrils, you could say. And I managed to completely merge with her in a way. So we became one. And she gave me her own energy and her own light. And this caused uh, such a surge of Kundalini in me that... uh, it basically broke through. And I could hear this tearing sound as as that happened. And there was this tearing sound, and um, I could feel the top back part of my head opening up. And um, so first, this serpent of energy actually um, burst out. And I could feel it sort of peeking out. But then the second thing that happened is that um, liquid light, um, bright white light that was uh, very hot and uh, actually very pleasant feeling, um, started flowing into my brain. And I could feel it... um, coming down like a waterfall, I would say. And I could even hear the sound. So it was like the sound of a, of a waterfall. And uh, this liquid energy just rushed into my brain and it, uh, it enveloped my whole body. And um, so it was uh, just uh, pure ecstasy and joy and happiness and love and uh, um, 
I started having flashes of uh, realization. So I started um, understanding things about the world and what was happening to me that I, I didn't understand before. And then um, I realized that it was no longer in my body and I started expanding. And then I realized I, was, I, 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 I wasn't even on earth anymore. I was not um, anywhere. It was a sort of dimensionless void. And I was the light within this void. And I started expanding, but um, it was like expanding into infinity. So I was um, universal. And there were no limitations in terms of time and space or dimensions. I expanded in all directions. And um, I felt infinitely happy and loved. And um, in, in that state, because I was no longer in my body, uh, I was fully conscious for the first time in my life. And um, I had this weird experience of uh, omniscience, of uh, understanding everything and knowing everything. And I felt like I had access to all the knowledge in the in the universe. And uh, so in this expansive state, um, I kind of understood what it meant to exist in a unitive state and to, to be universal, to be one with everything, to be one with God or whatever you want to call it. And... Um, <clears throat> But then I knew I, I, I had to come back into my into my body. So I spent some time there. Um, and I knew that I would only understand a fraction of what I understood in this state. That uh, what I would bring back into my body would be a very small portion of the knowledge that was available to me in that uh, universal state. So I uh, gradually started shrinking. And uh, I would say that in the universal state, I was probably as big as the, as the universe itself. So I was, uh, I was my own universe, you could say that. And then I started coming back and I started shrinking. And then the experience of coming back was somewhat similar to my NDE in that, again, I felt uh, constrained and imprisoned in my, in my own body as I came back. But then I also felt uh, very happy because I, I knew this experience had happened to me and uh, <clears throat> I was given a gift, a spiritual gift and uh, divine grace, probably, you could say. Um, and uh, like I said, I could only remember a very tiny fraction of of uh, what I understood in that state. But it was uh, uh, a lot more than before. So I gained a lot of knowledge and uh, wisdom through this. And by the time I returned to my body, uh, this presence was gone already. So she already flew away to wherever she came from. And so that was the experience. You asked or prayed for help, and you were asking the Sumerian god, I believe, was yeah. that, did you do that while you were inside the cathedral or were you on the grounds of the cathedral or in the? No, I was, I was nearby. And then the woman that helped you, you, she's not the God that you were praying to. Maybe the God had sent her to help you. Yes, yes. Um, later I, I understood that because uh, she sent me uh, lucid dreams where I met her mm-hmm. uh, later on. And then she explained to me that her name was Inanna, which I which I wasn't sure about uh, at that point. And uh, so she sent uh, several lucid dreams to me where I was with her, and uh, I saw her in different um, in different uh, situations, which usually took part in the future. So you could say that they were they were visions of a sort, and then. Um, 
It took many years, but later I actually learned to communicate with her uh, more or less sufficiently. So um, it's always difficult because when you're dealing with uh, telepathic communication, um, you get intentions and feelings and uh, you might get phrases or words. You might get small visions or pictures might flash in, 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 in front of your mind's eye. But it's never um, such an exact communication as, as what you would have verbally. But then your brain has to learn to, uh, to create uh, words and sentences out of the uh, telepathic communication that you get. But that took many years. And then, you know, as, as, as time progressed, she visited me many times afterwards, uh, not in this form, but um, in a sort of more uh, astral form or just in terms of uh, connecting to me telepathically. But this was the only time that she was almost physical in a way that she was really there and uh, she she touched me and uh, things like that. When you heard the tearing sound, what do you think was causing that tearing sound? Um, this is actually uh, known about in yoga. And this happens when the final knot uh, at the top of the head uh, uh, is broken. And that's when a person can access heaven. This, this opening is actually called the mouth of heaven in Sanskrit because uh, it enables the person to go to heaven or to communicate with heaven or even to receive the, uh, the gifts of heaven, the food of the gods, as it's usually called, which is uh, soma or ambrosia, as the, as the Greeks call it. So it's this liquid light substance that uh, enters the brain uh, upon illumination, I suppose you could say. You could say that this is a sort of enlightenment experience, even if it's uh, only temporary, but you get the light in a way and uh, it uh, suffuses your body, it changes you, it uh, gives you wisdom and insight and uh, that sort of thing. So do you think it's an energetic tearing or what do you think is actually tearing? Well, it's interesting because Buddhist monks in Tibet, they will actually try to open it up physically. Hmm. So uh, they will use a chisel and a hammer wow. and st start hammering away. <laughs> so they they certainly think there's some, some sort of physical block there. Um, and, and, and you see it, you know, uh, monks will usually shave their head just just at that spot. Mm. Or they will wear their hair in a knot or uh, there's all sorts of imagery that's associated with it. I think it's a um, sort of a subtle material block. So if you know, uh, there are different levels of the, of the human body, according to yoga at least. And... Uh, so there's the physical body, which we, which we all know, and there's a subtle physical body, as they say, which is what comes with you when you die. So it's, uh, it's still, it still looks like a, like, like a human body. I guess we could, we would probably call it an astral body, but it's made of a different matter. So it's not the physical matter that we're used to. And it's probably at that level that this uh, sort of half energetic, half physical knot exists. Some people describe or they'll make the comment of tearing of the veil. Do you think that may be it? Yes, probably. probably. Yes. Do you think you have any past life connection to Sumeria? Mm, probably, yes. Probably, yes. Um, I, I was told so anyway. And... Uh, when I first uh, visited this um, exhibit, then I immediately felt uh, connected to it. So uh, I think there's probably something, something there. You said you started meditating when you were 13. What yeah. got you into it at that age? 
Well, as you know, I I lived in India as a child for a while, and so I got interested in um, Hinduism and uh, yoga and uh, meditation and energy work and all of that uh, at quite an early age. And so uh, I started reading books that were, um, you know, more or less new age or esoteric. And most of them were actually pretty useless, <laughs> if I think back. But uh, it certainly showed showed uh, showed me that I that I had an interest in this. So I started uh, poking around and trying to read anything I could find and uh, try to learn to meditate. And um, I I think I always uh, enjoyed being in a in a meditative state. So even as a child, I took uh, long walks in nature and I spent a lot of time uh, just being in my head. Even when I wasn't meditating, I was usually in some sort of uh, semi-meditative state most of the time. So when you started doing the Kundalini on your own, did you just learn it from a book? I didn't uh, do it consciously. Um, I didn't want to do it um, consciously. It was just something that came naturally to me, and I felt this energy. It wanted to rise, and I just didn't stop it. I just, I just allowed it to happen. And I think it was probably preordained. Uh, I should note that this actually happened in December 2012, which, as you know, is, is, is exactly when the world was supposed yes. to end. And mm-hmm. <laughs> my world uh, certainly ended uh, that day. In a way, because it's it's very much described as a death and rebirth, and I think that's very accurate because the experience is very similar to an NDE in many ways, which I noticed when listening to your guests and uh, other people as well. And um, so, this expansion, uh, I think, when you're um, Consciousness expands and comes back. The memory of that uh, remains permanent. So you see yourself and the world very differently after that. Once you've raised Kundalini, is that the end point or do you raise it again? Um, Good question, yes. Um, Most people, they don't uh, raise it permanently. So... um, it wouldn't be very practical anyway. If you if you live in a physical body, uh, it's not very um, pleasant in a way to to try to live a life with a permanently raised kundalini. But um, reading about this from different authors, like uh, Gopi Krishna, for instance, who is a well-known author on kundalini, and uh, He's had a very similar experience to me in a way, because he was also self-taught and didn't follow any particular school or teacher. Um, He describes it um, in such a way that um, you would actually need to keep the Kundalini uh, lodged in the crown chakra for three days and three nights, and then it would stay there permanently. And people who can achieve that, they, they are the ones we would call saints or enlightened sages. Um, they are usually depicted with a halo around their head because they have this uh, permanent shining. Um, so that that takes quite some doing to achieve that. Mm. And I almost managed it once again. I, 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 I wasn't actually trying to, but this was during the summer solstice and uh, just a few years ago when I was particularly close to the goddess I, I don't usually call her by her by her Sumerian name I, ju- I just refer her I just refer to her as the goddess because uh, I realized after a while that there really is just one goddess and uh, she has many different forms and uh, she will appear in different cultures under different names and but um, if you understand um, the unitive state of consciousness, then 
it's not difficult to imagine that uh, there's basically just one uh, in the end. So that's what I think. Do you think that the goddess would be also known as the Virgin Mary? I would say that's the uh, Christian version. Um, I've actually looked into this a little bit, and there are some books written on the subject, like uh, this one called the Cosmic Shekinah. And Shekinah is the uh, Hebrew name for the divine feminine, I would say. And, and the Christian version of the Shekinah is the Holy Spirit. And if you look uh, into the history of uh, uh, Christianity and uh, Judaism in particular, you will find that it started with the Canaanite uh, pantheon, which is where Yahweh, the or Yahweh, as they say it, was the was the king of the gods, and his wife was Asherah. Um, later became syncretized as well into this sort of uh, mother goddess figure within within Christianity. But you can certainly see the uh, historical connections between the Sumerian gods who were known as the Anunnaki mm-hmm. uh, because the sky god was known as An. And this became El in uh, Canaan. And the sons of El were known as the Elohim, just as the sons of An were known as the Anunnaki. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the this isn't accepted, of course, by scholars in general, but uh, I think there's pretty strong evidence that uh, the Elohim of the Bible are actually the Anunnaki of, of Sumer. Mm-hmm. And this is something I, I didn't know at the time, and... Uh, I was very surprised when uh, speaking to the Sumerian gods and after a while they started to refer to themselves as the Elohim. Mm. And I was very surprised at that. But I think that's probably the truth, at least as far as I can see it. You mentioned earlier that the block in your heart chakra was due to you becoming an atheist. Have you returned to being a Roman Catholic, or where are you now on your religious and spiritual beliefs? I don't have any uh, particular set beliefs. Um, I don't believe in, in, in faith in itself. I think it's not a very useful thing to have, especially in the, in the modern world. It's not about faith, but it's, it's, it's about knowing and experience. So... You can only really uh, relate to something that that you have actually experienced yourself. So I think blind belief is not particularly useful because you have to be there. You have to see it for yourself. You have to experience it. And I I actually realized that is why we have so many atheists in the world today. And it's actually a growing number. And I used to be one of them, so I so I understand why people think and feel that way, why they why they try to deny the existence of God or the uh, divine or even a spiritual dimension to life. And it's actually um, it makes sense from a rational perspective, but it's also blindness because you shut yourself off from not only a higher power, but from a higher knowledge, uh, a higher vantage point even, you know, because there are so many uh, things in this world that exist that we don't actually know of. We cannot, we cannot see, we cannot perceive it in a normal state, but you can once you, once you learn to, um, to change your state or level of consciousness. And if you learn how to do that, then you can actually experience and perceive other realities that wouldn't normally be uh, accessible to you. And so I think um, that is why I uh, I believe in um, in the divine, 
you could call it God if you if you wanted to call it that. But um, um, I just know that there is uh, uh, something more out there, and I definitely believe in the in the Elohim because uh, I I make a differentiation there because it's not exactly the same. And uh, if you look at the Bible, there is a distinction between the Elohist and the Yahvist traditions. And if you look at Genesis, actually it starts with the Elohim created heaven and earth. And so they are the creators. And I know a lot of, uh, especially people who are uh, Jewish would not would not actually agree with this, but uh, I think there is no question that the Elohim is a plural noun and it refers to a pantheon of gods, but it's also true that it's one God because they have one mind. And I've actually experienced this. So when the Elohim speak, they speak in one voice. And you can see this, you can experience this um, when you connect to them, but it's also depicted in art when they show a chorus of angels and it's like a harmony of voices. So I find that the that the Elohim they speak in one voice, and it's a beautiful harmony of uh, voices that you can that you can hear. So you're saying that the Elohim are actually the Anunnaki. Yes, change names. Do you support Zachariah Sitchin's work about the Sumerians? Yes, yes, I should have known uh, it would it would come up. Um, hmm. No, I don't know. Uh, no, unfortunately, he was not very knowledgeable about uh, the Sumerian language or um, the whole mythology. And uh, there is uh, probably a little bit of truth in, in, in the work that he did. And it's also uh, important to note that uh, some of his books he actually channeled. Uh, for instance, the book of Enki. It was a channeled book, um, which is not based on any Sumerian texts, or at least very loosely based. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think he probably had the right idea about about some things, but in general, I don't believe that the Anunnaki were actually uh, physical beings, mm-hmm. although some people might say that, you know. Uh, but from from what I have experienced, um, and the gods, as you could call them in most cultures, because you also have the devas in uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, they are light beings. Mm. And actually, if you look at the root of Elohim and uh, the root of uh, deva, they both mean shining ones. And these beings, they are made of light and they shine and they have this sort of radiance that's uh, unmistakable. You know, I don't know a lot about Sitchin's work. I never read his book. I've just kind of seen what's popular on TV. But, you know, I think he's part of the deal that the Anunnaki are aliens and they're going to return with Planet X. Maybe it's possible he misunderstood that, that they were, you know, confusing aliens with light beings. And maybe this return of Planet X could be some some other type of return. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't believe in. Uh, I think it's called Nibiru, actually. Yeah, Nibiru. There you go. Yes. Yeah, Nibiru. Um, there's nothing in the in the um, actual Sumerian texts, if you if you read them, that would uh, indicate this tenth planet. So I don't know where he got that from. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not actually in the in the Sumerian texts. And I'm sorry. Is it true that the Sumerians had a map of our solar system back in their time? Yes, they did. Yes, uh, you can see there is a famous um, clay tablet, probably, uh, which depicts the solar system. Uh, I think it's the god Enki, actually, mm-hmm. um, sitting in his chair, and uh, he's surrounded by what look like stars, but are probably planets. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a number of planets there. But uh, I mean, I'm, I think there probably is a planet X, by the way. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that it would be habitable or that the gods really are there. Uh, yeah. I think that's very far-fetched. 
But I have to tell you that um, within the Buddhist and, and Hindu traditions, uh, there are a lot of other planets that are mentioned, uh, which are usually not in our solar system. So, uh, and many of them are actually astral planets. So they don't exist in in the physical sense, but they are they are in the astral realm. But there are many many stories. Uh, for instance, in the Mahabharata, um, the son of the god Indra, who is called Arjuna, and Indra is the same Indo-European god as Zeus, hmm. and he's also related to to Yahweh in a way, uh, the biblical Yahweh. Um, so in this story in the Mahabharata, um, he actually takes a heavenly chariot, which could be interpreted as a, as a spacecraft. And it's described that he flies by the planets. And uh, then he sees the stars flying by and he gets to this other planet where his father Indra lives. And the planet is actually described in some detail. And, uh, so we get uh, a description of this other planet. Mm. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a possibility in some ways. Mm. Uh, it's not uh, an entirely harebrained idea, but um, I don't really see much evidence for it right now. But, you know, with all the UAP revelations, we might, uh, yeah. we might know pretty soon. Yes. We, we, we might be surprised at, at what's going to come out. What part of the Mahabharata was this in that they talk about that? Well, I can I can try to find the exact passage for you if you want. Oh, I'll awesome. send it to you later. Great. Thank yeah, you. But I read this when I was a child, so I don't remember the exact details, but uh, stuck with me. Isn't there something within the Mahabharata where they're describing a nuclear explosion? Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, they have a lot of uh, magical weapons uh, in in the in the Mahabharata. That's during the big final battle in the in the end, where they use this. I think it's called the weapon of Brahma, if I if I remember correctly, mm. which can only be used once and uh, is described as this huge light. And uh, the after effects are very similar to nuclear fallout because uh, people are poisoned and their hair starts falling out and uh, they have boils all over their body. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's it's possible it talks about a nuclear explosion. But there are actually even more impressive weapons uh, during this time when Arjuna is on this other planet, the planet of Indra. He's given the task of uh, fighting the enemies of the gods. And uh, he takes a chariot and uh, various weapons that are given to him. And uh, some of them are like uh, lightning or uh, projectiles or rockets. You know, it looks... Some, like, like something out of Star Wars or, or Star Trek. Do you think that book is based on history or do you think those are just stories made up? The Mahabharata? Yes. Um, I think it's definitely, it's, it's the same with all ancient epics. They are always based on history. And then, you know, as time goes by, they add to it and they embellish it. So I'm sure that they, that they added to it over the centuries and they actually had to sit down one time and uh, say, "That's it. We're going to we're going to limit the Mahabharata to a hundred thousand verses, which is a lot, you know." Mm. And uh, then they actually sat down and said, "Okay, that's it. Nobody can add to this anymore." Right. Because of course, poets and priests and uh, mystics they they kept adding to it all the time. But I think the core story is definitely true. Kind of sounds like the Bible and the Council of Nicaea, where at some point they decided, okay, what's in the Bible and what's not. Yes, yes, it's a very similar story. All right, Christian, I've gone over time with you. So before we go, do you have anything that you would like to promote? Do you have a website or or anything that you would like to just mention to everybody? Um, not yet. Uh, I will probably um, start a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Um, because I want to want to add to some of the things I said here. 
and I just realized that it's a very good way to uh, talk about these uh, spiritual experiences and whatnot. Uh, but at the moment, uh, I'm reachable at uh, christian.cons, which is K-O-N-C-Z at gmail.com, and people can reach me by email. All right, great. So you're open to people contacting you if you if they want to ask you questions or chit-chat or whatever. Yes, yes, of course, yeah. Well, once you get your YouTube up and running, be sure to send me the link and I'll go back and put it in this video. Okay. All right. Well, before we finish up, do you have one positive message that you can leave us with? Consciousness is infinite and you are infinite. So don't worry about anything, you know, because uh, whatever happens in this life, you're just uh, going to go on living as infinite consciousness. And that's your true state. That's your source. That's your destination. So um, just stop worrying about uh, small things in life. It's not worth it. And uh, try to find a way to reach the absolute, to become, you know, to fulfill your true potential. Well, that's a great message. Christian, thank you so much again for being my guest. I really appreciate you. And enjoy the rest of your day over there in Hungary. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.